professor at our seminary in Hamilton. Beloved in the Lord, did the writers of the catechism forget something? For when it deals with Jesus' resurrection, you might think that's the case. For with almost every other event in Christ's life that is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, what do you confess when you say he was conceived, he suffered, he was crucified, he died, he was buried? The Catechism first speaks of the fact of what was described. Well, it begins with what happened, and then it looks at the meaning of it. But here in Lord's Day 17, the Catechism just jumps straight to the result of the resurrection. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? It doesn't at all address the actual event of Christ leaving the tomb on the first day of the week. It's like the Catechism is saying, look, everybody knows that Jesus came back to life. Everybody knows that he rose from the grave, so how does this help us? Yet, doesn't that seem like a big jump? Shouldn't the writers have maybe done more to establish the history of that event first? Because today there are many who say that the resurrection of Christ never really happened, that it couldn't have happened. They might say, oh, it's a reassuring story, or one that's just made up by the disciples to deal with their disappointment of the cross and of Jesus' death. So I guess it's a nice tale and all, but that's all it is. Because nobody comes back from the dead. It's impossible. It breaks all the laws of nature. It contradicts the truth of science. Well, when the catechism was first written, you can be sure that there were also doubters then too. But Lord's Day 17 doesn't use up any space to respond to these skeptics. After all, it is a confession of faith. This is what we believe. These are the things of which we are certain. And so from this perspective of faith, the catechism insists on the true story of Christ's resurrection. And it insists that it is a true story, a powerful story, and a continuing story. So let's first look at the fact that it is a true story. For Christ's resurrection is a fact. And of that, I probably don't need to convince you. They call that preaching to the choir, so to say, when you bring a message to the very people who've already been persuaded. Even so, let's take a few minutes to consider some of the standard arguments against the resurrection of Christ. Some will say that there was no resurrection from the dead for the simple reason that Jesus didn't actually die. They say he was seriously wounded, to be sure. But the disciples, the women, the Romans, they were all mistaken when they thought that Jesus had passed away on the cross, that he merely lost consciousness, that he fainted due to the loss of blood because of the holes in his head, in his hands, in his feet, in his side. But then a few days later, in the coolness of the tomb, he regained his strength, and then he walked out into the sunshine. Once in a while, there are stories in the news about this kind of thing happening. 
Maybe a typical example is of a man who suffered a major heart attack and was declared dead by the attending paramedic and then brought to the morgue. But then several hours later, he woke up and found himself locked in the morgue refrigerator and started yelling to be let out. He hadn't died, but had merely slipped into a very deep coma. While his heart was still beating, it was too faint to be detected. It is a true story. Maybe, maybe the same thing happened with Jesus. Was he really dead? Well, there could be very little question about the fact of his death. For Jesus was assaulted terribly for those two days. He was beaten, flogged, crucified, and stabbed deep in the side with a spear. Now on its own, a Roman flogging was sometimes enough to kill a person, for it shredded the skin and the flesh even to the point where you could see the ribs and internal organs like the kidneys. What's more, the slow suffocation of being crucified was well designed for killing. And medically speaking, the blood and the water that flowed out of Jesus' side, it was a sure sign that his heart had been punctured. And even before that, Jesus himself testified with his words of his impending death when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yes, Jesus was dead. There could be no doubt about that. But then others trying to discredit the story of the resurrection say that Christ was only thought to have risen because everybody went to the wrong tomb. Now, maybe you've become disoriented during a very, very stressful time in your life. And maybe you can relate to this. You're not always sure what you're doing or what's going on. Well, according to some, in all the trauma of those days, the disciples, they just lost their hold on reality. They forgot the important details. And so there on Sunday morning, what did the angel say to the disciples? Oh, he's not here, meaning he's in a different tomb. (laughs) Yes, in all their distress, the disciples couldn't find the body of Jesus, so they just naturally assumed that he'd come back to life. But this theory is shaky, too. It's hard to believe that the right tomb was completely forgotten by everybody, by friend and foe alike. For when the disciples, in their confusion, began to say that Jesus had arisen, we could be sure that the Jews, that they would have helpfully reminded them, helpfully reminded them of where the body lay. Like, hey, it's over there in that tomb. And so another theory goes, Perhaps the disciples just stole the body of Christ. In Matthew 28, we hear that this was already a story circulating in the days of Jesus after he rose. For after the bitter disappointment of the cross, the disciples, they did not want to see the end of the movement of the cross go away. So they removed the body of Jesus from the tomb and began to spread the message that he had arisen. Yes, that would keep the excitement alive. Yet from the four Gospels, we know that in the minds of the disciples, there was little thought of resurrection. Jesus told them about it more than once, yet they were so slow to accept it. And that's why when we see the disciples on the evening of Good Friday, they looked like men without hope. 
This was the darkest day. The cross had left them so discouraged, so defeated, that they were even hiding behind locked doors. There was no wishful thinking about the resurrection, no desire to go body snatching. Even if they wanted to steal the body, what would they have done about all those armed soldiers standing there at the tomb? So no, they didn't steal the body. And then, of course, there's another suggestion about why the tomb was empty. And that's that the enemies of Jesus removed his body themselves. Conspirators like the scribes or the chief priests, they stole it away. Perhaps they did it in fear that the disciples would beat them to it. Or maybe in their fear that his followers would later turn his body into some kind of sacred relic and then charge people to come and see it. But it's really hard to imagine the Jewish leaders doing something like that. Why would, they, why would they risk starting all kinds of rumors about a resurrection? If the body was gone, it would only stir up these troublesome disciples once more. And of course, if the Jewish leaders had really taken Christ's body, again, why didn't they simply produce it once the disciples began preaching that Jesus was risen? Surely bringing out the body from hiding would have stopped all this nonsense about the resurrection right then and there. Yet all we read about is the leaders being silent. They had to stay silent because the body was really gone. And then there's the final argument against this article of our creed. The argument that actually underpins all those others. And it's what you've heard before. That a resurrection from the dead is impossible. Logically, scientifically, Realistically, it can't happen. Not for Jesus, and not for us. A person, once dead, cannot spontaneously come back to life. It only happens in zombie movies, which, let's face it, aren't really known for their being realistic. And so, people will refuse to accept this teaching. Think of Paul when he was preaching on the Areopagus in Athens in Acts chapter 17. The Greeks, they listened to him politely enough as he talked about the Creator, as he talked about mankind, and even of Jesus of Nazareth. They were interested. But it is when Paul started talking about the resurrection that he lost them. It's only then that the philosophers and the deep thinkers start to mock him, and many leave. What sane person could possibly believe these fairy tales? And against this point of flat denial, there is little we can say. For like with so much of God's word, it is a question of faith. Do you believe that God can raise the dead? Do you believe that Christ has power over the grave? Do you believe that with God nothing is impossible? that the Lord can give life to the lifeless? Because really, that is exactly what it comes down to. Either we accept the testimony of the word of God, or we don't. The gospel is either true in all that it affirms, or it's false. Well, another layer of certainty is also added over when we think about all the witnesses we hear of. For the scriptures tell us 
that there were many who saw Christ. There were the women, the apostles, 500 brothers, James, even the apostle Paul. Remember that not all of them were believers at that time. Certainly, Paul was no friend of Christ and his followers when he appeared to him on the Damascus road. Yet somehow, all of them became absolutely convinced that Jesus was alive. Looking at the evidence of Scripture and the testimony of all these witnesses and disregarding each of those arguments against Christ's resurrection, we find good news that we can believe. And we're certain of it because God says it happened. And we're certain of it because God says it had to happen. Yes, it had to happen if we were ever to be saved. For question 45, question and answer 45 makes this clear. By his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he obtained by his death. Which is our second point. For this true story is a powerful story. When we talk about the theory that the disciples stole Jesus' body, we said that it was most unlikely. It's unlikely also because of what the disciples were like. They were actually a lot like us. According to the Jews, uh, sorry, according to Jesus himself, his followers were men of little faith. People who were prone to doubt. People who were prone to wander. They were inclined to surrender at the very first sign of trouble. I mean, think about how quickly they scattered in the garden on the night that Jesus was betrayed. But let's imagine for a moment that it was the disciples who did steal the body of Jesus. Say they decided to swarm the guards at the tomb, and, and then they got the strength to roll the stone away. And then they picked up the corpse, and, and they took it away. Maybe, maybe they laid it in a quiet cave in Galilee. And then they went back to Jerusalem and they spent a day getting all their stories straight. And then they started preaching to everybody that the crucified Jesus was alive. After all, his body was gone, wasn't it? Well, we know from the book of Acts that there was an immediate reaction in Jerusalem. Many people opposed the disciples. They even tried to prevent them from preaching anymore. Yeah, within weeks... The Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious government, they ordered that some of these apostles be thrown into prison and even had them whipped. Ultimately, the apostles' message about the risen Savior was a message that got many of them killed. It's a fairly reliable history from the first century that of the twelve apostles, maybe only one or two of them actually died of old age. The rest of them? They were all martyred, beheaded, crucified, thrown to the lions. Certainly being an apostle, a preacher of Christ in the first century, it was not a job for the faint of heart. Which kind of begs the question, doesn't it? If the disciples had really stolen the body, would these characteristically timid disciples have suffered all this persecution and danger for something that they knew to be a lie? Would they have held on to their counterfeit claims, 
even as they were being dragged to the place of execution? Would they have endured persecution for something false? So easily at any moment, the disciples could have said, all right, all right, the joke's over. Here's the body. We'll be quiet now. Please just leave us alone. What about you? Would you die for something that you knew was false? Would you hold on to things with conviction so strongly? We tend to do that. And maybe we'll even pay the price if there's an idea or principle that really means something to us. But most of us would would probably give up an argument once we're convinced that we're wrong. Or maybe we'll give up once the cost of maintaining our position becomes too high to bear. But what do we see in the Gospels and in the book of Acts? We see the disciples dramatically transformed. For on Good Friday and the day after, they were discouraged. They were a disheartened crew. They trembled behind locked doors. They were scared stiff at a loss. What do they do now? Well, it took them a little bit, but early the next week, we see them energized, for suddenly their outlook on everything is completely different. Something fundamental had changed in them. Now they can't say enough about their master, who once was dead and now is risen. And now they preach the empty tomb wherever they go, from Jerusalem to Rome and to the ends of the earth. Of course, they were violently opposed. The Jews attacked them for bringing this message about the so-called Messiah. The Greeks laughed at them for spouting off such silly ideas like resurrection. The Romans persecuted them for saying that the risen Christ was Lord and demanded total loyalty and devotion. Yet, we see the disciples continue to preach that Jesus Christ was alive and well, and reigning in heaven. Do you maybe wonder about what changed? What brought on this reversal of their behavior? Because people don't take risks like this unless they're very sure of what they're doing. And the disciples are completely convinced that Jesus was alive. So convinced, in fact, that they were willing to die for him. And it is all because of who Christ is. With their own eyes, they have seen the Lord risen from the grave. And now the disciples are new men. Not just because they've seen Christ in the flesh, but because now they really understood who he was. He wasn't just some friendly dude from Galilee. He wasn't just a really awesome teacher. He wasn't even someone who came to die so others might live. No, this Jesus of Nazareth is the great king. He is God and Lord. He's the triumphant warrior, and by his death, by his resurrection, Jesus Jesus showed that there is nothing and nobody that can ever stop him. For Jesus paid the penalty for sin by his death on the cross. This most needed, most precious price was handed over And God accepted it in full. Christ's blood was enough. And by raising Jesus from the grave, God showed his perfect satisfaction. Jesus had done it. 
once and for all. What gloriously good news. And then with that victory, Christ destroyed Satan. Though the devil tried to make Jesus fail, he could not. Though Satan tried to frighten him with the thought of his coming death, Jesus stayed the course. And by his resurrection, our Savior showed that he broke the power of the evil one. He took away death's cruel sting. That was the final enemy, death. Unnatural, unrelenting, unavoidable. Yet now, even death is defeated by the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the earth-shattering message that Jesus entrusted to the apostles and which now needed to come from their lips for all nations to hear. Christ overcame sin. He vanquished Satan. He conquered death. So now sinners can have everlasting peace with God. Christ has set us free from all the power of the devil, and he claims us as his own. While we've never seen the risen Christ, his amazing gospel endures, and it remains a message that needs to be accepted through faith. For that's what the resurrected Jesus said to Thomas, who wanted first to see and feel the nail marks in his hand. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John 20, verse 29. We haven't seen him, but thankfully by God's grace we may believe. And when we believe in him, we are also transformed. Transformed like those first disciples were. For we confess in the catechism, by Christ's resurrecting power, we are raised up to new life. What does that mean to be raised up to new life. By his spirit, Christ can raise us out of a miserable life of unbridled sin, and he can free us from our crushing burden of guilt before God. Yes, Christ can raise us up over all his and our enemies. And so, instead of doing things that lead to death, we can start to do what pleases God. Now already, we can begin to be his faithful servants in a wicked world. Now we can join the apostles confessing Christ in this world without fear. In fact, we can witness with boldness, with joy. And even if people oppose us, or mock us, or even threaten to kill us, we can speak of the one who is risen from the dead. We believe that God can raise the dead. We believe that he can raise us. In fact, you see his resurrecting power when you accept the Savior in true faith. You witness his resurrecting power when you see how God is changing you from within. For apart from the risen Christ, you'd still be like those lost disciples on Good Friday. You'd be weak unbelieving, cowardly, and inactive. But now you can believe. Now you can begin to sacrifice and serve something much bigger than yourself. You can work for the kingdom of our Christ. And if you see this resurrecting power, be amazed. Be amazed at what God has done 
and go serve your Lord. Know that Christ's power is great, and it's available. And it's available if you seek it. It's available if you ask him. And so we'll finally consider then how the true story of Christ's resurrection continues today. For in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is very blunt. If Jesus is still in his tomb today, we have nothing, and we are hopeless. Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And that sounds pretty bleak. But thankfully, Christ is risen. And so the first disciples preached his resurrection with great boldness. It seems they were hardly worried about their enemies or about opposition. With all their swords and their whips and torture, this is maybe how they looked at it. What was this life if it wasn't lived for Christ? And what was death if Christ has already removed its sting? In fact, that's exactly how Paul wrote from the Roman prison. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1 verse 20. This was the confidence that moved the disciples to spread the gospel. For even if they died, their reward was guaranteed. And it is still today, too. This is the final benefit of Christ's resurrection that the Catechism mentions to us. His resurrection to us is a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Because Christ has risen, we will rise too. Because Christ has won over the grave, that same victory is given to us as well. When a Christian gets close to the day of death, there still might be some fear. There often is. Nobody still living knows what it's like to close our eyes for the last time. But when death does come, a Christian knows that this enemy has already been conquered, knows that a body placed in the grave is not the end. And compared to eternity, we know that this life is only like the blinking of an eye. Today is only a short time of preparation for what is to come. It's only a prelude to the grand symphony of eternity. And as Christians, we know that the best is yet to come. And all that is true. Yet, our life here is more than just a rehearsal. This life is important, for what you do here counts. For as long as you are on this earth, you all have a part. You have a name, even a mission. For you are not here for your own happiness, your own pursuits above all. No, you are here to follow your Lord Christ. From when he calls you, right until the day you die. You are here to follow the Savior from this life right in to the next. As Paul would say, your Christian faith isn't worth a whole lot if this life is all that you have to live. Why serve God if there is no future? Why live for the Lord if there is no reward and no resurrection? But in Christ we are secure. In Christ, God has given us a guarantee that we will live with him forever. And so, 
the marvelous story of Christ's resurrection is not done. It's a story that continues, you see, for it continues in you and in me. It needs to continue in us, in our labors for his kingdom, in our devotion to his church, in our love for his word. And when we know it, then we will also do it. So, beloved, has the resurrection of Jesus changed you? Has it changed you like it changed those first disciples so long ago? Has his resurrection given you hope? Does it inspire you? Encourage you? Does it give you a new outlook on life? When you think about Christ's resurrection, do you realize that you have a new calling? Pray that you might do the work that the risen Lord has assigned to you. Be filled by his power and live for his glory starting now and continuing forever. Amen. So we'll respond to the sermon with Psalm 98, stanzas 1 and 2. And then after that, we have the Nicene Creed and then confessional singing. So if you can stand for that length of time, then we'll stand for all of it.
confess our faith through the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, and who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he arose according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. And we believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.